Hello and welcome to another episode of Near Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, the church, and the culture. My name is Derek Rishmelling, and I'm joined by uh, most of the cast and crew, Alistair Roberts and Matthew Lee Anderson. But more importantly, we're joined by a better Anderson, <laughs> Hannah Anderson, who uh, we... We love having Oz. She's a friend of the friend of the show uh, and and a fantastic writer. We wanted to have her on as she's just published, uh, well, a few months ago, just published uh, a great great little book, Humble Roots: How Humility Grounds and Nourishes Your Soul. So we wanted to have her on to chat about that and things related to it. So Hannah, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Derek, and thank you for that introduction. I have found my new tagline, <laughs> The Better Anderson. <laughs> yes. You realize, Hannah, that's not really a compliment, that, that that's such a low bar. That's, that you've, uh, it's, you know, the, the ordinary yeah, Anderson, the average Anderson would be closer to it. <laughs> oh, man. Well, Hannah, we, we wanted to have you on, uh, talk about more things, but but just in a nutshell, Humble Roots, you know, what, what, what's it about and what provoked it? Well, it is a book that came out in October um, with Moody Publishers. It's kind of the other side of the coin to Made for More. Um, a couple years ago, I had written a book targeted toward women about recovering and understanding of Imago Dei, of their identity as image bearers. And after that came out, the conversation continued, and I began going through some processing on my own to say, okay, well, what is another truth that comes out of this conversation, or maybe even what holds this truth in tension? And, you know, sometimes we talk about Imago Dei, and we think, well, there's the sameness of Imago Dei, and so gender must be the opposite end of that spectrum. We'll talk about the commonness that we have as human beings, and then we'll talk about what differentiates us from each other. But that didn't really square for me as I was moving forward in the conversation. What I realized that I needed personally, and what I think my readers needed, was a conversation about humanness as created beings. So made for more open this conversation of being made in God's image and the ways that we are destined to reflect him and to represent him as human beings. But what holds that intention is a really strong understanding of not being God. So we are like God in some ways, but we are not God. And so Humble Roots was a process um, you know, that I went through to kind of wrestle with my creaturehood, um, to, to hold onto this understanding of our limitations. And, um, and it had very practical ramifications for me. And in the book, I talk about some of the pressures that I felt wanting to live in this Imago Dei identity and finding myself coming up short regularly. Um, finding myself tired, exhausted, stressed, tired, worried. Um, and all of that came full circle as I began to develop a practical theology of what it means to be human and live within the limitations that God has put on us. So one element that you talk about in the book is this notion of... Um, kind of a messiah complex. Uh, and so you talked a little bit about 
the different things featuring in there. So I was wondering what, what um, you want to define it, the Messiah complex and kind of what, what went, what are some of the main factors you see kind of contributing to that uh, broadly, especially in, in um, the life of kind of the a- average people in the church or, 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 or workers in the church. Um, does that make, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the tensions that I think we face as we develop an understanding of who we are as human beings, our callings, our vocations, is we do have to understand ourselves as image bearers. We absolutely have to have a foundation of our lives reflecting the characteristic and um, the good work that God does. But the difficulty is that we can very quickly confuse ourselves for God himself. And so this is where, how I define pride in the book. The book is an exploration of humility, um, especially through creaturehood and limitation. But um, pride is essentially when we confuse who we are and assume that we have the power and the knowledge and the capacity that God has. So a Messiah complex in its most basic form is beginning to think of ourselves as having the capacity that God has. And so that plays itself out in, um, you know, the work we're doing, our relationships, the way we navigate the world. And the thing that is so subtle about a Messiah complex is that it can often exhibit itself in places that are good, you know, like in the church or ministry or family. And we're pursuing very good things. We're not being proud in the sense that we're swaggering or we're looking to indulge ourselves or we're pursuing celebrity or power or fame, but we end up operating out of pride that tells us we're more capable than we actually are. And so I think people in ministry particularly are, um, I, my husband's a pastor and He's been in ministry for probably 10, 12 years now, and I work alongside him with that. Of course, in my writing, I have a lot of exposure to the church and and people who are giving their lives to spreading the gospel. And I think we can be some of the people most prone to this Messiah complex of trying to promote a vision of human flourishing or to promote the gospel, but we end up doing it um, in our own strength. And my audience tends to be um, women, just by nature of my voice and the context that I write out of. And I also see this, um, especially among very committed Christian women, um, a sense of passion for very good things, but not always a knowledge and awareness of how to go about those good things and humility. Hmm. Hmm. Fellas, you had any any, uh, questions or feedback or Matt Alistair I I really enjoyed the book um so first of all thank you very much um I thought it was superb and it's something I'd recommend to others something I found very interesting is throughout the book you explore um stories and images from um gardening and from just cultivation of plants and dealing with the soil and 
I found it interesting the way that you talked in other places about the danger of almost thinking Christianity as a matter of right thinking and right method and we just turn the wheel and out come the results. Um, and the importance instead of that of creating this sense of patience, a recognition of what we've been given and a dependence upon God. And for me, those two things went very close together um, in the way that you explored these themes, the way that our dealings with the soil, our dealings with um, growth within the natural environment are very closely akin to these sorts of spiritual processes of learning to depend upon God, of developing that humility of recognising the gifts of God's world and working with those rather than in terms of our control and getting our results through our own methods. We have to be submit to the limits that we've been given and also receive the gifts that we've been given. I was wondering particularly about how you believe... So, for instance, let's take a very concrete issue. Um, raising children. There's a lot of talk about methods, about if you think about it this particular way, you'll get these results or whatever. How would you argue that um, a more humble approach, one that's... Um, reshaped in the way that you encourage would help us to rethink that task? Hmm. Well, parenting, like any other form of ministry, um, has its challenges and you come into it with limitations. And I think your recognition that gardening and working the soil and cultivating plants, it is absolutely a metaphor that I wanted to carry the the concept. I wanted form and function to work in this book. And I think so often, even in church ministry, we approach it very mechanistically. So we, we do have a vision of a machine, you know, input and output. Um, what my husband and I have discovered both in ministry and parenting and in gardening is that there are certain rules to follow. It is not just you can scatter your seed in, in the ground and walk away from it and not cultivate it. You absolutely have to cultivate it, but at the end of the day, you can't control the weather, you can't control the disease. You know, gardening is a humbling act because there's so much beyond your control. And so in parenting, we commit ourselves to the cultivation to the spiritual formation of our children just as much as we would commit ourselves to the cultivation of our gardens or, um, you know, uh, fruit trees or whatever. We have to commit to the work. Um, but there's so much dependence and sometimes just praying for rain to come. Um, I remember growing up, my father was a kind of homesteader and we had a large, probably half acre um, garden that we grew for our family's use. There were five children in the family, and so most of our food came through cultivating over the summer. And there were times where, in family devotions, he would say, we need to pray for rain. <laughs> we we haven't had rain. It's not coming. The, the plants are not doing well. And so for me, that's what I grew up understanding gardening to be. A lot of hard work, but a lot of prayer as well. And so when I come to children, raising children or doing the work of discipleship, um, 
I don't throw up my hands and just say, well, it's going to be what it's going to be. You know, you do your best, but who can control the outcome? We absolutely don't control the outcome, but we are called to the work, to do faithful work nonetheless. You know, I, I was struck when, with the gardening metaphor is um, just how much patience that requires. Uh, patience is... Um, I, I am I, I am a very impatient man in in many ways, uh, and the level of patience required simply to wait for God to give the growth. Um, I, I know I, I don't parent, but I used I used to pastor a bit, and um, man, patience with 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 that with seeing what you have tried to tend and care, um, and then being surprised when it does grow you know a couple years down the road when you don't see it um that that is one thing that i've continually had to return to is just you know patience is one of those frustrating elements of i think creaturehood that because things are out of your control you have to wait and and that waiting is a you know it's a it's a kind of suffering um for for those of us who want to make things happen now, to want to make things happen according to these particular um, ways that we know it should go, <laughs> right? Um, and so that that metaphor of gardening, um, I, I never gardened a day. I mean, I, I mowed the lawn and that was it, but I never actually did any farming or anything like that. And so Basically, I blame my parents for not living on a farm for my current impatience and uh, and flawed character is what I... Mom, Dad, why did we live in the suburbs? If you're listening. Uh, but no, that, that's that's part of what struck me is this in, in pastoring that, that element of like wanting to jump the gun, wanting to like kickstart discipleship and, and, and make it a 12-week process after which somebody is sanctified. Um, and then when it doesn't happen, like it's supposed to, um, can be a very frustrating thing if, if, if that's the kind of results you're expecting and that's the kind of mindset you have going into the job. Um, so, right. And I think the word expecting is a huge part of unpacking this dilemma because, I think a lot of times in ministry, especially and in parenting, we're we're given or we receive expectations about what it should look like, and so we do create this um, level of well, you just do this. You know, these are the steps you take to become a successful pastor. You go to seminary, you network right, you read the right books, you implement um, the right discipleship program, you have the right church structure. You know, you get into a church, and if it doesn't have the appropriate church structure, you change it, and then it will work. And and so what a lot of ministers have been given in evangelicalism is the affirmation that if you just take the steps, you'll be fine. And I think a lot of guys get in, you know, five, ten years in, and they're dealing with, wait a minute, this didn't flourish the way I expected it to. Um, and they also don't know how to look for the growth that's, that is happening. They don't know how to recognize, you know, this particular plant didn't do well this year, 
but this one over here did. And that's another fascinating thing. Each garden cycle is entirely different. Um, I wrote about tomatoes in the book and usually they do well. And in God's wisdom this summer, we had um, a blight decimate our tomatoes and we have nothing on our shelves, which is typ uh, not typical for our garden and our family. So I think a lot of the expectations that go into ministry, that go into parenting, are what set us up for frustration and disappointment too. Hannah, those expectations, um, as you've been uh, talking about this, I've been thinking some about uh, the Victorian depiction of evangelicals uh, in books like Middlemarch. Uh, you have Bolstrode, who's... Um, you know, pretty self-deceived about, or his own uh, righteousness, we discover at the end. Um, you have Mr. Collins in Pride and Prejudice, who's just this noxious character who is always prattling on about uh, the highest possible standards of, of morality and abiding by them and so on and so forth. Oh, yeah. Um, there, oh, boy. There's, there's, a, there's a really strong Victorian critique of, of the rigorist dimension of evangelicalism, of, of the, um, the pressure that uh, they would put on themselves and on everyone else to abide by a certain moral code. Um, do you think that that sort of perfectionism, is it endemic to evangelicalism? Is, is it the sort of thing that is, uh, goes to the root of it? Or can it be extracted and, and removed while still leaving the corn intact? Is, is there something, to, I just mix metaphors, I realize. Um, it, yeah, is there something sort of peculiar about evangelicalism that breeds that sort of perfectionism and that breeds uh, the rigorous sensibilities that go along with it? Hmm. Yeah. You know, as I was looking at the lay of the land in writing, um, I always try to find the surface level expression of a problem. Um, what is the felt need? What are people wrestling with? And for my audience and my readers who are predominantly evangelical, I saw a lot of um, burnout, um, a lot of exhaustion with, I've been trying, I've been trying to, to make my garden grow, <laughs> and I'm just really tired, whether it's church ministry or parenting or saving the world. Um, and then I try to get underneath that and say, well, what are the contributing theological convictions or cultural um, milieu that people are existing in that is leading them to that place? And of the couple of things that I recognized that are intrinsic to evangelicalism is we put a lot of stake in our ability to save the world. Um, we have a very strong missional um, emphasis, which, I mean, that's the heart of evangelicalism, right? I mean, it is the evangel. It is taking the gospel to the world, which we are called to as the church. But I think sometimes that can easily move to us believing that we are the ones establishing God's kingdom on the earth. So we're going to take the gospel to the farthest reaches. We're going to convert people. We're going to set up the reign of Christ. Um, and you add to that this kind of 
personal dynamic that exists in evangelicalism that not only are we going to do it as a church, but you have to do it. You yourself have to uh, reveal your spirituality by being the one to change the world. And so I do think there is this larger context that makes us as evangelicals particularly susceptible to the temptation of a messiah complex. How so? How do you, Derek? Let me just follow up on that real quick. How do you address that underlying problem without falling into um, uh, sort of touting or glorifying mediocrity or imperfection? I mean, when I look at the um, sort of contemporary blowback against that sort of perfectionism, a lot of it has to do with, oh, you know, we're, we're terrible people and we just have to sort of wallow in our terribleness and everyone should be okay with how terrible we are. Is there a way of um, not succumbing to that sort of uh, counter-reaction while still preserving a, a, a sense of grace and leniency about the expectations that we would have for people? Yeah, that, that right, was... Because that- that was my question is there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a series of, there's like a, also a vibe of certain blogs that like the, just the, I'm a mess, you're a mess mom blogs that, mm-hmm. um, but often it's so weird when you see those, there's like the photos, like I'm a mess, you're a mess, but then like, but everything looks, looks perfect. Just, I, don't, I don't know how that, <laughs> It's just like, I don't know, God's grace on me is so, uh, yeah. so great today. And because then, like, it sends the message that, right, because it, it sends the message to everyone else that even at my worst, I look this good. Yeah. Um, and, and so, <laughs> absolutely, you're asking. You're struggling with the question of identity here. You know, is it an identity of brokenness or is it an identity of triumphalism? Um, and I think what humility does is that it corrects both of those. So the truth is we exist in this already, not yet. And I think both extremes um, neglect one part of that. So the brokenness neglects the truth of already. You already are redeemed. You already are justified. And yet the trend toward this you know, triumph and missionalism and this sense that we can overcome the world misses the not yet. Not yet, you can't. Um, And so human identity, actually knowing ourselves for who we are, the humility um, that Christ showed in his incarnation in coming into a broken world, teaches us, it corrects both of those, because it tells us your humility means submitting to God. And so if God has called you to a certain work, you have to do that work because he's called you, not because you're going to save the world. You could end up not saving the world. You could end up with no fruit whatever to show. You could end up completely disappointed in your garden, but God has called you to that work. And so you submit to him and humility says you stay the course. Um, But at the same time, when God gives increase, Humility also teaches you and reminds you, you didn't do that. (laughs) You didn't make that rainfall. You didn't make that sunshine. You didn't make that plant grow. All you did was be faithful to the cultivation and the tending. And so as I explored humility and incarnation and worked through these ideas in the book, 
the sense that it could correct both of these extremes. It could give us a way to live in the world that would free us to passionately um, pursue the calling that God has on our lives with freedom and joy, and yet also boundary us in such a way that we never think it's our passion and our joy that is actually saving the world. I read a fascinating article this last week by Sarah Perry over on Ribbon Farm called Tendrils of Mess in Our Brains. And it explores something that constantly faces me. I mean, every single day I'm surrounded by it, but I don't actually reflect upon it as a thing in itself, and that is mess. Um, The concept of what are the conditions under which mess manifests. So within the article, she observes that within nature, we don't usually see mess. Nature doesn't get into a mess in the way that we do, um, except primarily in things like hair. Um, Our hair can become a mess, but that's more something for humans because we have hair that grows out longer than that of other animals and doesn't stop in the same way. Um, But she explores the way that different sorts of houses, when they decay or when there are items strewn around within them, Certain houses are mess resilient in a way that others are not. So she talks about these modern rectilinear, highly ordered houses that imply a particular sort of um, order within them and how their residents struggle to furnish them because most many of their furnishings that they're put within them look like mess because of the implied order of the house. Whereas a more... Um, a house that's built out of more natural materials, when it decays, when it falls apart, it can actually look quite attractive. When you look at the ruins of an old monastery or something like that, they can be very attractive in their ruined state because there's something natural about it. There's a, a sort of organic connection between the um, habitation, even in its ruined condition, and the natural order from which it was fashioned. Whereas our modern houses that have an extremely high sense of order and implied order within them are um, difficult to keep out of the state of mess. Now I was thinking about this and wondering how it could be extended almost as a metaphor for our lives more generally because our lives can have a certain degree of implied order to them and that implied order can either be one that is mess resilient that allows space for the mess, the untidiness, the loose ends, um, the incomplete work, all these sorts of things within our lives. Or it can be something that makes those aspects of our lives glaring and something that we cannot live with comfortably. Um, So I was wondering, just within that metaphor, how um, is that a helpful way of thinking about your sort of project? Um, Developing a Christian approach of humility can give us a degree of mess resilience in our lives that is far more healthy. Hmm. Well, it's interesting. It actually reminds me of how I opened the book, which was a period of anxiety in my life, um, extended period of over several months, where I struggled in my life feeling like it was a constant mess, like it was one of these modern homes where anything I put into it was unfinished, it was unkempt. Um, And so it irritated and frustrated me that the email was unsent or that my children, you know, they were 
their rooms were messy, um, that I could not juggle all the balls, that I could not keep everything locked in the place it was supposed to be locked. And that created within me um, a sense of discontentment and frustration and anxiety and restlessness with my own life. And it was a very good life. It was a very happy um, life full of good people and good work, but I could not relax in my own home, in my own life. And what the process of reflecting on the choices I was making and how pride was structuring my life in ways that I did not even know it, um, humility moves us to a place where embrace of limitations maybe <laughs> creates that uh, monastery that you described where the unfinished um, article is, is exactly what happens when you're a limited human being. You know, the, the idea that I should be perfect, that I should have everything under exact control, that I should be able to facilitate and navigate my life um, with such order and such precision is just impossible given my humanity. And I think that expectation of being able to execute life with the power of God, you know, and, and it's interesting because I think in the mommy blogosphere, especially in within evangelical women's conversations, we don't use this language, but we, we create this image of the goddess. Okay. There's this female goddess who has the power of the divine that can orchestrate her life. Her children are always Instagram ready. Her work is seamless. Her, she's able to entertain with hospitality. And, and it really is what humility does is it just brings us back and puts us in a place to say, why are you even surprised that your dishes are dirty? Why are you even surprised that you can't keep your life together? These are the natural human limits of your existence. And, and the sooner you embrace them, the sooner you can live within that space and it can be comfortable and you can still work toward the work you've been given to do, but without the, um, the sense of not being able to inhabit your own life. You talk about embracing limits. Um, I mean, that's more than just resigning yourself to your limits. Um, how, how can we welcome lim limits? What is the goodness of the limits that we mm. have? Well, I think the first thing we have to believe is that limits, if limits were good enough for Christ, they were good, they're good enough for us. And I think we see in the incarnation um, a model of the goodness of God's design on human identity, that limitations are not the same as sinfulness. And I think sometimes we confuse those two. Um, we also have to believe that limits are given for a purpose, that there is something beautiful in individual limits connecting us to other people, how limits build and form community and relationship. And I think of this, I think the, the clearest uh, representation of this is the limit of gender. You know, being female 
and being male is a gift, but it is a limit. And we are not capable to even fulfill the callings that are put upon us, you know, in the creation mandate to fill the earth, be fruitful, multiply. We're not even capable of doing those without those limits drawing us to the opposite. And so I think there is creative design in limiting us that ties us both to each other and ties this independence on God. Um, he, he has put us in a place where he's made it impossible for us to exist without that intimate day-by-day day dependence of, you know, give us this day, our daily bread. And so for me, embracing limits, not resigning myself to limits, meant changing my mind about whether limits were intended or whether they were a result of the fall. And once I could move to a place to say, okay, we do have this sinful brokenness and sometimes it's hard to sort out the difference, you know, in your day-to-day life, how much of this is sin, how much am I contributing to this and how much is this just the limitation of being human? Um, And once you can see humanness not as a punishment, but as good design, then I think you're, you're in a place where you can begin to embrace them. That's great. Um, Matt, you're, you're quiet. Well, I'm trying to think Thoughts. of all the jokes to make that would, that would entangle Alistair in another controversy about gender and the limits of gender. Um. Right. What are the limits? <laughs> don't you dare. What are the limits we should embrace in MMA fighting? I, you know, I don't know. But, um, <laughs> Oh goodness! Sorry, uh, no, it had I, to be I, said. That, that, but that 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 thought on limits is is, you know, there, there's there's something liberating about a limit, and that it's it's both a it tells you where to stop, and it also tells you how far you can go in a certain sense. Um, you know, Sabbath Sabbath slows you down, in order partially to energize you. Um, so so you know, I, my pastor, um, my my wife works at. at at our church and um he basically if he sees her answer a work email on on the day she's supposed to be off like he gets he he gets mad or you're not supposed to respond right now that that's that's for the next day um because there's a sense where where you're you're pushing too far i mean this is this is essentially comes back to sabbath in a lot of ways uh for me sabbath the sabbath concept and the sabbath principle um, is one that is so misunderstood. And I found so misunderstood with my college students. Um, I thought that was, it was one of the things I found that it was probably the command they, they, they were most likely to break in that so many of them were just go, 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 filling their time with all these sorts of things, not all of which was work, but none of which was kind of deep biblical rest, right? And, I, you know, you know, sitting, sitting up till three, watching YouTube isn't like biblical rest, um, and neither was the, the millions of extracurriculars that they filled their time with. They just didn't, they always had to fill their space with something, um, to do. Whereas things like Sabbath remind us that, that no, we, there are times when we're not supposed to do anything. We're, we're supposed to sit, we're supposed to rest before the Lord. We're supposed to embrace that there is this day that we remember that God is upholding all things, that God has saved us, that, that God has done all of these things 
uh, without any of our help. And he continues to do these things without any of our help. And, and so um, it kind of reminds us of the gift that he invites us into certain certain elements of work, um, you know, because not because he needs to, not because in a sense we need to for things to survive, but but because it's a good thing. Um, I, I probably just rambled a word salad there, but there's that there's that level where where limits they slow you down in order to help you appreciate what you are doing when you do it. Um, that there is there is a gift and and goodness to work and to activity when you're actually going about it. But if you're consistently and constantly never stopping, never never acknowledging these limits, it takes on that character of of harried, frantic. I've got to get this done. Um, nature that that uh, kind of mars and mars it and 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 um, makes it feel like toil. Uh, is part of what makes it feel like toil. Um, so that that notion of limits, I found very helpful, especially when you connect it to when you can connect it to Sabbath. Um, that, that's my, my little thought there. Uh, Alistair, Matt, Hannah. Towards the end of the book, you, towards the conclusion, you take that theme of rest, but relating it to the trust that we need to exercise every night as we sleep. Um, be interested to hear some more of your thoughts on that, because I've found that was something I was thinking about recently, one night when I wasn't getting to sleep. Um, I was just thinking about the process of sleeping and how it does train us in this more general posture towards life. Mm-hmm. I think um, the idea both of Sabbath and lying ourselves down to sleep every night um, is a chance to let the liturgy of rest, like our body learn things to teach our souls and even our minds. And so one of the things that had to change in my life through this process of learning humility um, and dependence was that my, my body had to do what my mind was learning was true. And so for me, um, I opened the book with uh, a vignette of being restless and awake and not being able to sleep at night, my mind turning, concerned about all the expectations um, my responsibilities, not knowing where they end. Um, you know, when is it enough? <laughs> when do I get to say this is the end of the assignment? Um, and at the end of the book, I close with um, a chapter on rest um, in the in through the lens of resurrection and the loss of my grandmother when I was about twelve years old. Um, and I think what humility and what our bodies learn through the stopping of work, through the lying down each night, is a a very true um, engagement of letting go of our control. And so when you lay down to sleep, um, you have to be in a safe place. You have to 
trust the person you're lying next to in bed with you, that they're not going to harm you in the middle of the night. You have to trust that you're in a safe enough community or neighborhood that someone's not going to break in while you lay down and you close your eyes and you are no longer on guard. And what I realized is that part of what was disrupting my sleep was a sense of anxiousness and always on guard and always ready um, for the next thing I needed to defend myself against or the next thing I needed to do or the next um, challenge. And the one of the, the key passages that actually began this search is in Matthew 11, where Christ calls people who are heavy laden to come to him for rest. And he says, take my yoke upon me, which is the submission that comes from learning dependence and creaturehood. But he also says, learn from me because I am meek and lowly of heart. And it's that word lowly that is the word humility. And so there is something about learning to trust God with our work and our lives that is embodied by the fact that we can lie down to sleep at night. And I, I really think that lying down every night is like a form of um, liturgy that God is creating in our souls of learning to trust him. Um, and we pray these prayers, right? It's the whole, I lay, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And um, it, this is forming in us. It can be the space of spiritual formation to learn to rest, to just stop, whether it's Sabbath or it's each night, to just stop long enough to say, this is not dependent on me. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And on that note, I think it's a wise point to wrap up. Uh, Hannah, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, for those of you who are listening and benefited from this conversation, once again, the book is Humble Roots. Uh, we will have a link to it at the show notes at uh, neurorthodoxy.com. You can pick that up. Uh, but yeah, for now, thanks for coming on, Hannah. Great having you. Well, it was great to be with you all. Uh, and if you are listening in, um, if you found that show helpful, feel free to rate and review us at iTunes or stop by the uh the, the notes at neuroproxy.com and uh, check out our Patreon account. But for now, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.